Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. Today's talk is by Dr. John Ball, Professor of Forestry at South Dakota State University and the Forest Health Specialist for the South Dakota Department of Agriculture. Dr. Ball's talk is on using diversity to reduce the impact of exotic pests. It was originally presented at the 2014 ISA International Conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, uh, well, thanks. I appreciate everybody getting up uh, early this morning and coming in for the session. I uh, hope you find this stuff uh, useful and helpful to you. Um, what I'm going to talk about is a little bit about diversity, and I know we're all aware of it. Uh, his remarks coming in were, were a perfect setup for this talk, so we'll see how things go. But uh, since I am a teacher, and I am a professor of forestry at South Dakota State University, uh, uh, but I'm also the forest health specialist for the South Dakota Department of Ag and the extension forestry specialist for cooperative extension and the campus arborist at SDSU as well. So I wear a lot of hats and obviously diversity is a big issue. But being a faculty member, you can't do something without a quiz. So we're going to do just a little quiz here this morning. You got to tell me what the following trees have in common. Cat surgery. How many people are familiar with cat surgery? Quite a few, yeah, I figured with this room you should know this tree. I love this tree. It's one of my favorite trees. When I worked for a tree company in Boston, we had these that were almost 100 feet tall. They were wonderful trees to climb. I worked on a plant health care program out there, and uh, this was one of my favorite trees. You say, but you're from South Dakota? There is the one in South Dakota. The nice thing about living in South Dakota, I get to know all the trees individually. Uh, and there is the, there is the tallest cat tree in South Dakota, there used to be two, the other one died. It realized it was in South Dakota, apparently. Uh, but you know what? It's a great tree. Hardy rubber tree, how many know that tree? I like that tree as well. It's an unusual tree. We had it on campus at Michigan State University. And once again, we do have them in South Dakota. And in fact, they do a little bit better. Uh, they're hardier than people realize. Apparently, this is one of those trees that did not read the book. Uh, and of course decided it's not going to follow hardiness zones, which I completely agree with. I'm not sure what they mean either. Ginkgo. Now everybody knows ginkgo. I mean, just a wonderful tree. And then finally, Osage Orange, which you know what? Kill me, but I like this tree. Uh, in the proper place, and that is not what a tree should be in the proper spot. There was one that I didn't care for. It was the Michigan State. It was a female in a parking lot. And yeah, well, you would go, yeah, but the people who didn't know would park their cars underneath that. And of course, when these brains start to fall, uh, that can leave a lot of latex on your car as well as a few sizable dents. 
you may be familiar with the fact that this tree is known as a spider killer. In the fall of the year, they sell these at the grocery stores and that, that you can use them to kill spiders. It does work. If you hit a spider with one, it does die. Uh, but other than that, it has fairly limited uh, effectiveness. Well, you know, I just went over four species. All right, Osage Orange, Ginkgo, Hardy Rubber Tree, uh, and Cat Surra Tree. And what do these trees have in common? Well, they're monotypic. Now, if there's a taxonomist in the audience, they're going to say, whoa, 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 there's three species of cat surgery. Uh, that's where we get into the argument, lumpers and splitters, and I'm sure everybody here is aware of that. that uh, but we'll go with there's one, but I realize there's some authorities who believe there's three different trees. But they're monotypic. I mean, how many ginkgos do you plant? How many species of ginkgo? You have one. You know, hardy rubber tree. It's the only member. These are very, very lonely plants. A way to look at it. They have no close relatives, all right? The other thing is, they have very few pest problems. If you came here today and said, you know what, my entire city forestry, uh, when we did the inventory, all our, all our forest is these four species, I'll bet you a dime you've never done anything on insect and disease control. Because when I worked out in Boston where we grew all four of these, if any of these occurred on someone's property, I could just about check them off in our plant health care program that we're not really going to have to scout for pests on. There's not a lot of pests of ginkgo. There's not a lot of pests of cancer trees or Osage orange or hardy rubber trees. All right. And again, there's a connection there. What you'll find, and this was a little survey that I did, if you take a look at these various genera, look at that from birch all the way down to uh, elm. Uh, if you take a look at the number of species, and I realize that's always up for discussion because, again, there's lumpers and splitters. Uh, but if you take a look at those numbers, 128 species of, of uh, birch, or, excuse me, of maple, for example, uh, of sorbus, 125, and then you take a look at the number of serious pests, not the ones that occasionally chew on the leaves. Notice a connection here. And what it is, and this is a good take-home message right at the beginning, be very cautious of planting species-rich genera. Anytime you have lots of species, it also tends to follow you have lots of problems. There's lots to exploit. Once you figure out the key to kill one of the trees, you can pretty much go through the whole genera. And so quite often when you find lots and lots of species involved, you tend to find that there's lots and lots of problems. I mean, certainly with populace. I mean, that has numerous problems, or my favorite are the choke cherries. You know, I get calls from people, why is my choke cherry dying? My question is, how did it live? I mean, these things get more problems than you shake a stick at. When somebody calls me and says, well, you know, it's got this and this and this, you ought to be lucky because it doesn't have that and that and that as well. I mean, prunus, I mean, cherries, they're just looking for a place to die. I mean, they look good one day, the next day they're dead. That's what they do. All right, so it's a very problem-prone uh, genus. But now look, we've dropped it down to what I call my second category, the second tier. Notice we're now in the single digits in terms of number of species. And take a look at the number of problems. It's also reduced. Again, there's not, uh, think of yourself as a pest. There's not, a, and I'm giving them human characteristics now, of course, 
but there's not a lot of return for your investment to figure out how to get through the defenses of these plants, is there? Because once you figure out how to kill one of them, how many more can you kill? Maybe another one or two. Again, if you figure out how to kill a prunus, you've got a very rich source to continue to plow through because they're all fairly close related. So when you start to get these, you know, uh, coffee trees again, or sweet gums or that, or so on, that's, there's not a lot of pest problems associated. If you take a look at the serious pest problems, we're also now getting down almost to the single digits. And then take a look here, where we're getting down to the lands of the onesies. All right, the four that I showed you before. Take a look at the number of pests. Once again, it's come down. So one of the things that we need to be thinking about when we start talking about species diversity, and unfortunately people think of species diversity as just adding more plants. Well, no, that's not really looking at it properly. You know, we've got to look at it with a little bit of caution. If you're out there saying, you know what, we're going to plant this particular genus. Is it a species-rich genus? And I don't just mean in your local area, but globally. You know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't plant it, but that also means there's a little bit of caution in the use of that. Well, of course, when we take a look at this, it's a general rule, and general rules are designed to be broken, as you will. No, but the more species in a genus, generally speaking, as I've showed you, the more pests. And, equally important, the more potential pests. Because we don't have to look at, just look at what's attacking them now, but we also have to look at what's occurring in the future. You know, a very good example, of course, is emerald ash borer. Fifteen years ago, it was completely off anybody's radar screen. But you know what? The planets were aligning. The setup was there. The fact that something happened should not have surprised any of us. It did. But what I'm going to show you this morning is how we can utilize that to keep from being surprised again and again and again. Of course, now we've got to look at it the other way around, and you're all familiar with this tree, I'm sure, a tree that's disappeared. And when people come and say, you know what, emerald ash borer, that's just a horrible thing. Oh, no, we've seen far worse. So now let's take a look not at plants, but at pests. And now let's look at problems. And what do these problems have in common? Well, we'll start out with chestnut blight. Uh, there's not too many people here that really remember it anymore. But if you go back, this was the catastrophe in the United States. When I take a look at the loss of a tree, it was chestnut that was the true loss. You know, it was an amazing species. Still is. We still have a few out in South Dakota that are beyond the line, so to speak. There's obviously a few out in western Minnesota as well that have so far have escaped uh, chestnut blight. But this was considered the most common tree of the eastern deciduous forest. It was said that a squirrel could jump from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi just on chestnut. One-fourth of the eastern deciduous forest was chestnut. It was an incredibly durable wood. They had timber sales of standing dead trees, trees that had stood dead for 50 years. There's people I know that make a living mining timbers out of old barns and utilizing them. Whole families would go into the woods in the fall to collect the nuts. These were the nuts to roast before the open fire. This was a true tragedy when we lost this. I mean, look at the trees. We don't see those trees anymore in the eastern forest. When you look at pictures of this, what are your thoughts? You're looking at something out west, but these were incredible in the co-forest of Appalachia. 
The disease was first noted in the early part of the last century, about 1904, though interesting enough, if you go through the literature, they were noticing trees with symptoms in the surrounding area as far back as, an, as 20 years beforehand. So the late 1800s, and again, like most problems, what did we notice about EAB? Somebody noticing some trees dying, and how did that kind of simmer for years and years and years? That seems to be another common thing. Something occurs, nobody knows what it is, so you just kind of write it off, and then suddenly it explodes, and this exploded very quickly. By 1905, take a look at, look at Long Island. I mean, how quickly they lost the trees, and by 1950, it had spread throughout its entire range. As he mentioned, we had another problem, and we're still dealing with this problem, Dutch elm disease. And Dutch elm disease was just a horrible catastrophe when it arrived here, because elm was, and still in many cases, is one of the most common trees. It is still the most common tree on my campus. Dutch elm disease was not discovered in South Dakota until about 1967, and it took till 1985 to cross the entire state. So we're still managing a lot of elm forests. When I lived out in Maine, I lived in Waterville, which was called Elm City, and we had one large elm left. So as most of you know, we lost these trees over the last uh, almost 100 years. But remember scenes like this? I can still show you sites like this in South Dakota, though they're becoming rarer and rarer, but this was the tree. It was one tough tree and still is. You could plant it almost anywhere. It grew like a weed. It grew fast and tall, provided perfect shade. It was almost the ideal urban tree. And because of that, we planted it everywhere. And then they came down. And when they came down, what did we do? We planted green ash. You know what? We learned the wrong lesson with Dutch elm disease. The lesson we learned was not to plant elm. The lesson we should have learned was we need to diversify, that we need to go out there and plant other trees, including elm, which we're also planting back in our campus. I do need them. And that, but my fear is we are not learning our lesson once again, and now that we're losing all the ash, we're going to get right on this treadmill, and someone's going to be standing in front of an ISA conference, maybe as a hologram, while you're all sitting at home in your jammies still. All right, say talking about the icky bicky bug attacking the baki waki tree, and why didn't we learn the lesson from before? All right, so let's see if we can get off that train and look ahead. So when we lost those trees and we replaced them with entire streets of ash, emerald ash borer just had to show up. And of course, once again, streets like this were turned into streets like this. Well, what do all those pests have in common, those three that I mentioned? And again, they're just three good examples. There are others. You know, chestnut blight, Dutch elm disease, and emerald ash borer. Well, the pest became a deadly threat when introduced to a new continent. You know, I've worked in China now for almost 20 years, and EAB was not a big issue over there when I was going through the forest. I'll be quite frank, I didn't even know it existed when I was out working in their forest in the mid-90s. Uh, it was only when it gained, gained attention here that I actually start looking over there for it, but it's there, and it's not a big problem. Uh, Dutch elm disease, it's not a big issue over there. You know, chestnut blight, none of these pests became a threat until what? They moved to a new continent. 
And also, they attack a genus, not a species. One of the things that I really, really, really don't like to see anyone focus on is species diversity. You know, if you say, you know what, I've got a diverse urban forest, I've got green ash, white ash, black ash, blue ash, woohoo! You've got a buffet. All right? You have no protection in there whatsoever. So saying, you know what, we've got a lot of different species out there isn't going to do you anything. And the third setup for this, each genus has species in all three temperate continents. Ooh, there's the perfect alliance. All right, a pest on one continent, all right, that can now move to another continent. Because that's all the problem, isn't it? is that essentially we have these different populations of trees that share enough in common that pests can recognize them as suitable hosts, but you have no defenses against them, or very limited. Well, Santamore from 1990 proposed, and I remember hearing his talks at, at the ISA conferences and in fact at the Minnesota Society of Agriculture in the late 90s, proposed no more than 10% of your urban forest in a species 20% in a genus and 30% in a family. And I know there's a lot of people that kind of took this as the gospel. Right? We all like rules. We all like do this, do this, and do this. And so it was, you know what? If I've only got 10% of my trees in a species, I'm doing good. 20% in a genus, 30% in a family. I've got everything set up. Life is, life is good. But you know what? It's not enough, as I said. I could care less about the species. That's not a real issue. And there's the John Ball rule that ought to make you groan. No more than 5% of your urban forest from any one genus. Now, when we surveyed South Dakota, and we've done some surveys, and I published this in Arboriculture and Urban Forestry a number of years ago, believe it or not, we have communities in South Dakota that actually hit this, and it's pretty tough. You know, in Milwaukee, you get a full box of crayons to play with. We get a couple of colors. So the choices that we have are even less. But imagine if your entire population of a northern city out here, if some of you are from this general region, and you're worried about the coming EAB, if 5% of all your trees were ash, would you be that worried about it? No. But a lot of us are sitting on what? 30, 40% ash. We have some communities out there that are 40 or 50% ash. The idea of the 5% is really a management decision that at, at most, you've put 5% of your forest at risk to anything. All right? That's hopefully something you could handle in your budget if a lethal threat came, and hopefully it wouldn't be able to run that fast. But that's where I came up with a 5% rule, if you will. Well, there's some other things to that, of course. You know, if we look at it, of course, with EAB, it didn't matter if you got black ash, green ash, white ash. I always love this. You know, we're in the land of denial. I often felt in the last couple of years what we needed was a EAB anonymous program for nurserymen, you know, because they just couldn't get it. You know, we had people saying, well, you know what, our trees are resistant to EAB. Yeah, why? Well, they haven't died yet. Well, it's not here yet. See? All right, that doesn't mean it. All right, we're only growing white ash. They're not as susceptible as green ash. Yeah, it takes another week to die. You know, or my favorite was in Minnesota when a nurseryman stood up and said, no, EAB can't survive this far north. You just keep planting ash. And two weeks later, they found it, of course. Uh, I mean, it's, again, this denial. I got to keep selling ash because I'm growing ash. You know, ash is like meth. 
you know, once you get on it, it's hard to get off it. And uh, maybe there's not enough meth heads in here to understand that. And, oh, my goodness, that's recorded, and I've just lost my job. But what the heck? <laughs> there is an analogy, meth and EAB. Uh, blue ash, obviously, a little bets are off, as I'm sure some of you are aware that blue ash seems to have a little bit better ability to tolerate uh, EAB than some of our other native species. But once again, it's still not a safe bet. But look at this, and this would be for the north central, northeast United States, southeastern Canada. So I apologize for folks from other areas of this country, or certainly from an international audience. But if you take a look at what our typical urban forest would have, and as I was walking around Milwaukee uh, the last couple of days just to kind of get out of a darkened room, you know, I'd see a lot of these trees and obviously some others. Tree of Heaven, of course, is here. And the nice thing about South Dakota is Tree of Heaven dies from the winter. Yay, one for our side. But take a look at this when we take a look at the orders that we use and the families that we use and the various genera. We've got about eight different orders that we select from about 14 different families. And this is about 27 different genera and then added up even more of the species level, just how much we're utilizing out there. And if you really look, the serious life threats we have out there the ones that I'm most worried about are at the genus, right? I mean, you take a look at birch, what do we got? Bronze birch borer, certainly a native insect, but we've planted in a lot of exotic birches out there. We have oak, depending on where you're at in the country, oak wilt's an issue, or uh, obviously sudden oak death, or two-line chestnut borer. Ash, we're all certainly aware of, uh, with emerald ash borer. Elm, with Dutch elm disease. Notice our real serious threats are there. I'm not talking about a species. I'm saying, you know, we have to be careful about American elm. Well, in our area, we lost all the rock elm first. And then we're losing the American elm, and we still got some slippery elm. But they're all susceptible to various degrees. And the same with every one of these. If you start moving it up a bit and start looking at, well, where's threats at a family level? They're really not that many. I mean, we do have a variety of insects that attack in the Olinaceae family. The ash lilac borer, for example, that we can find on syringa, and we can find it on ash. And I recognize, once again, there are lumpers and splitters there as well, and there are some entomologists that decide that those are two separate critters as well. And then we have the ash and privet borer. All right, which then attacks both those. So there is some commonality in there. So we do have a few threats there. And I'm sure you're all aware of fire blight with, uh, with the rosaceae family, which obviously can affect a wide range. But really, I'm not too worried about what you've done at the family level. I'm not too worried if you've loaded up on a family a little bit more. I'm not too worried about that 30% rule with family. Pretty, pretty much, you're going to cover that anyway. If you put 5% of your trees in any one genus, you have to do that. It's impossible to choose that many genera from one family. And if we go up even farther here, um, you know, looking at ones that cross families, think of the number of serious threats out there that occur across family levels. There's very, very, very few. The one that we deal with the most, of course, is verticillium wilt. Once again, we may be looking at a couple of species. 
of verticillium. Armillaria shoestring root rot's another one that will attack across them. You know, in South Dakota, the big ones we have are catalpa, elm, and, and uh, uh, maple, but we also throw in ash in there as well. So we have very, very few threats that are occurring across families. I'm not really worried about that. There's not much I can do about it. Plus, if you sit down there and say, well, John, I've got to watch that family rule, good luck. Because look at the changes we've had in the last couple of years. You know, when I talk to my students and we're going over our identification classes, you don't have to go back too many years, and there used to be, and I'm sure, every, uh, I don't know how many are aware of it, the Acer Acer family's gone. It's dysfunctional, all right? It disappeared. We've lumped them together, and we've also split some families. You know, Hackberry is no longer a member of Olnacy. And so, my goodness, the way we, we lump and split families, it's almost like a day-to-day -day change. You could suddenly say, you know what, I don't have my 30% diversity level because somebody lumped them together. Well, that's kind of artificial. And so don't spend a lot of time worrying about families. If you worry about the, at the general level, at the genus, you're pretty well going to fit this. So, no more than 5% from any one genus, but... Be very cautious with species-rich genera. So you know what? You say, well, you know what? I'm going to plant an awful lot of prunus. No, you're not. Unless, the only reason you plant a lot of prunus, if you're sitting in this room, you're a city forester, you're sitting in this room, you're 65 years old, the person who's going to take your job's already in your department, and you hate them, all right? You plant a lot of prunus. You just did a great setup, all right? Because when you retire, the urban forest is going to go to hell, and you can say, yep, it's that kid that followed me. Can't manage for crap. All right? <laughs> you know, outlive your problems. All right, so what else, though? Be even more cautious of planting genera where they're found on all three continents. So you know what? If you're out there saying, you know what? I'm planting this particular genus, and it's species-rich, and guess what? There's species in all three continents. I'd dial it back a little bit more if I could. I would watch that 5% rule very carefully because you just put a lot at risk on the table, a lot of potential threats out there. So let's take a look. You know, there's Earth. I'm sure you all recognize it. But there's Earth when, well, when I started teaching. <laughs> all right? No, some of you remember that. The early ISA conferences, you, you could drive to Europe from here. It was pretty easy. You know what? You know, stop. You know, when, when um, I, I remember when Australia split, it was kind of like, oh, crap, we can't drive there anymore. This is getting to be a problem. And some of you young folks haven't had to deal with that, but a lot of us did. But if you take a look, we used to be able to together a little bit better. And, you know, really, that was a setup for a problem. Because if you take a look, the beginnings of all our force, if you will, we were all together. And then as the consonants drifted, we all kind of waved goodbye to everybody and developed on our own. If you take a look at ash, back when there was the land bridge connected, you literally could walk in an ash forest, more or less, from northern Ontario over to China. They were all connected. They all shared a lot in common. But obviously, that split has happened and so now what do we have? Again, depending on lumpers and splitters, 
We've got about 40 different species in North America, about 20 in East Asia, about three in Europe and East Asia, but here's the problem. They're all still ash. They're all still fairly closely connected. They're all still very similar. And so what happens is once they split and went their own way, they developed their own pest pressure. And obviously they overcame that pest pressure because if they didn't, they'd be gone. All right, they've struck a bargain. You kill some of us, we kill some of you. And the populations live. But once you move something, and you can move it either way, can't you? You can move the species to a new continent and now expose it to new threats, or you can move a threat to a new continent. But once you do that shifting in either way, you now have a pest that can still recognize the host, but the host cannot recognize the pest and has no natural defenses. Okay, so why is it important to know when we start moving general around the planet is precisely that. That if, ev if evolutionary history, they've been connected, they've struck that bargain, you kill some of us, we kill some of you, increased stress reduces resistance to pests. That's something I was, I was ingrained to me in college. You know what, if you keep the tree healthy, it's going to have less pests. That was our mantra back in the late 60s, early 70s. And obviously we've all modified that. If any remembers going to college back then, uh, or actually if you went to college back then, you really don't remember it because that was a whole different time. But nevertheless, uh, but when you were there and they said, you know what, we used to, I mean, remember fertilizer requirements? Eight pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet. We were giving it more than corn. We were goosing things. And we realized, you know what, you can actually create more stress by trying to give them luxurious amounts. But the other thing we were told is, Keep them healthy, keep them healthy, keep them healthy. They can defend themselves, they can defend themselves. It works if there's evolutionary history, right? If there is that past connection. And on birch, it works. You keep a paper birch healthy, guess what? It can survive bronze birch bore a little bit better, live a little bit longer. If you don't have any history, guess what? It doesn't matter. I love these cut leaf birch. They're annuals, all right? You, you plant them and they live for a couple of years and they die because EAB finds them. And I don't care if you water them, you fertilize them, you nurse them, uh, you know, whatever you do, they are not going to be able to survive. There's no evolutionary history, right? In this case, what did we do? We brought an exotic tree to a native pest, right? And a lot of our Asian, and if some of you might remember in the early 70s, when they started planting a lot of Asian birch, saying these will be resistant to bronze birch borer. Why? What mechanism would explain that? And it didn't. You know, we've lost them easily. These are candy for EAB. And paper and uh, European birch as well. And the same is true with ash. You know, if we take a look at it, what's at risk? Our North American ash. You know, our white ash, our green ash, our black ash. Not really our Manchurian ash. What I thought was interesting is very early on when, when they started looking at about EAB in North America, is they went through and said, oh my goodness, this attacks everything. I mean, remember that first report? I did my PhD in a growlis, not this particular insect, but I was familiar with a growlis. And so when they said, oh my goodness, this insect attacks walnuts and elms and ash and Russian olive, which I saw as a plus. You know, the only thing they left off the list was small children and cats. It, it would attack, and it flew millions of miles, you know what? And it did all these amazing things. And I'm thinking, nah, it's an agralis. 
They're crappy flyers, they're lazy, and they tend to pick out one genus. And that's pretty much what it did. But when the early report said it's attacking the, the Chinese ash, and it's attacking these ash, and I love it when they found out that, oops, those were misidentified trees and arboreums. Oops, they were just green ash. All right, and you see that time and time again, but these can survive it. And now that they're looking at it, it's no different than our paper birch, and Santamorph did some of the early work on this and found, you know what, there were different compounds in the phloem of our native birch than there were the Asian birch. Makes sense, right? They had to come up to a meeting of the mind. You kill some of us, we'll kill some of you. And certainly the Asian ash have a way of reducing the impact if they're healthy. When I'm over in China, I see emerald ash borer doing what bronze birch borer does here, killing trees that are overmature off-site, not healthy individuals. Well, there's the native, all right, ranges of chestnut. And remember what I mentioned to you earlier, chestnut blight wiped us out, disease came from Asia, uh, and essentially wiped out our population. There's elm, look at that. Three distinct populations separated from a long, long time. And that's a big threat. And look at ash. And by the way, if anyone hears from Europe, you, you know, they're talking about losing ash too, but it's due to a disease that came from China. So you know what, even if your ash survive EAB, all we have to do is get that disease into this country and they're gonna wipe, I mean, this is not a good time to be an ash. All right, you're going you're gonna to be gone one way or another. Well, I travel a lot, like I say. That's an amur uh, choke cherry in China. Uh, this, uh, China's a great place to work, by the way. I love it. I love walking into Walmarts because everything is made right there. Uh, you know what? Go through a Walmart and try to find something made in the U.S. You know what? It ain't going to happen, by the way. They laugh when you say it. I want to find something made in the United States. Oh, no funny. <laughs> you don't make anything. We just ship them money. Uh, but there's where I work. Uh, that's up on the North Korean border. That's a, uh, uh, what is it? I think it's 60,000 acre forest, uh, which after the Korean War has not been turned back and it was never mined, which is kind of an important function if you're walking through there. But I spend a lot of time there looking at their forest and trees. And over there, incredibly diverse forest. They do have ash. And the ash over there look quite similar to our green ash yet they're not being affected by EAB until when? They begin to decline, all right? Their defenses are down. What's interesting about that forest, if I just showed you pictures of the forest, you would swear you're looking at northeastern United States. I mean, there's birch in those forests, there's ash around. Look at all the genera that are there. Some that are not native to North America, have no connections, some that do. And when I'm also over there, take a look what's coming. There's a lot of pests out there that we've not seen yet. So, let's look at maple. I really worry about maple. In South Dakota, that's become the new ash. You know, people say, well, you know what, we can't plant ash anymore. I need another fast-growing tree because everybody wants a tree that grows 50 feet the first year. All right, got to have that shade tree tomorrow. All right, so they're going to Freeman Maples. Autumn Blaze has become the flavor of the month, the year. Everybody plants it. Every developer. Developers don't want to know a lot. Give me a tree to plant. My favorite meeting, and I apologize for any landscape architects here, but I was at one meeting where we got together and we said, we're going to talk about trees we can plant. And one of the architects said to me, honest goodness, don't tell me what trees, tell me the tree. 
No, we're getting off that train. It's left the station. Well, maple is a very species-rich genus. There's lots of them, Freemans especially. But remember chestnut? Remember elm? Remember ash? There's maple. See the problem, people? As you're starting to go out there and think, well, let's get a few more maples out there. I'm willing to bet a lot of your urban forests have more than 5% maple in them already, either from the native component or what you planted, Norway maple obviously being almost a weed in eastern U.S. And that, but, you know, as we're starting to come up with more and more maple varieties, and this scares the heck out of me. Do you realize how fine we've divided? How many, how many cultivars of red maple have come out in the last couple of years? About a billion. Like, we need another one. It's like potent cultivars. Please, stop that train. We've got over 200. How many times can you divide white and yellow? All right, but it's continually to finally divide what we have rather than look for more. And so we've got the perfect setup for a problem. Oak. I love oak. You know, it's a beautiful tree uh, for us, bur oak. And there's a number, but take a look once again. Red oak's one of my favorite on campus there. But look at oak. Oak's got a little bit more scary. You can even find it in South America, growing in the highlands there. I've got four different continents that's, that thing's on. Imagine moving something from Europe or Asia. Some little insect, some disease that's just doing what it normally should do, recycling, preparing the dead for burial, essentially, doing what it should do, and now it moves here. All right? Or, likewise, we could have something from here move there. It can go both ways, of course. But nevertheless, I want you to be thinking of this as you start trying to increase what trees you're going to plant is, huh, how many other members of this genus are there? Where are they found? Eh, maybe we don't want to do a lot of them. Linden? Oh, yeah. Same problem, people. I love them. But there you go. You know, I'm sure some of you are saying, okay, this is not going well. Maples, lindens. Oaks. You're taking all the crayons out of the box, John. Yeah, I realize that. And I realize you're not going to get down to 5% in some of those things. But just keep in mind, if you say, you know what, John, I've got 30% maple in my town, something's coming. Don't ask me when, but I think it's inevitable. All right, that there's some little pest lurking somewhere that's going to end up over here. Well, what, what don't I lie at night worried about Kentucky coffee tree? I like Kentucky coffee tree. It's one of my favorite trees. I like the fruit. I'm sorry, but I do. Kentucky coffee trees, it's a hard sell. Nobody likes them. It's one of these trees that in our area, or at least even in Michigan where I lived, it grows slow when it starts, and then it speeds up. It's kind of like those kids you see periodically. They're little, little, and when, oh, my gosh, where'd they grow? You know, and, and we have Kentucky coffee trees we planted 30 years ago. Somebody else did. I wasn't at the university then. They planted at the same time they planted ash. For the first 20 years, ash outgrew the coffee trees. At 30 years, the coffee trees have caught up, and they're all the same size. You know, but I, I tell people, the first five years that you plant this tree, you're going to say, why did I plant it? It's barely growing. But why don't I lie wake at night worried about this particular plant? Why don't I say, oh, my goodness, what's going to come in and attack it? It's a beautiful tree. I like the pods, I'll admit. Makes a real crappy coffee, I'll tell you the truth. You ever make coffee out of this stuff, and I've tried it? You make that coffee, and, and if you're one of these people that's your weekend to make church coffee, you make it out of coffee tree pods, you'll never get told to make coffee again. You'll be right <laughs> off the list. 
I'd rather lick this carpet than drink that coffee. <laughs> but take a look. We've got maybe two, three, and some people go as far as four different species of coffee tree. And the other one are more tropical. There's not a lot of diversity out there. It's not a species-rich genus, is it? There's only a couple. And yes, there's found on other continents, but not very much. So this is a tree that I look at, you know, we could plant more. It's an underrepresented genus. The nice thing, too, I get a kick out of it. There's the Chinese coffee tree. You got to love the Chinese. They call it soap tree. Makes better soap than it does coffee, to be honest with you. So again, we ought to be looking at it more, but I'll tell you, it's a hard sell. So we need to explain the planet more. I mean, you know, we can't make new genera. You know, it's not like there's a box where we can put the parts together. So we just need to explore more. And I realize there's some of you here that say, you know what, but I like native plants. I want native plants. Native plants provide you no protection whatsoever. Besides, nothing is native to the urban forest. You know, and people say, well, I want to plant native trees. What's native to your front yard? Nothing. It's not a forest. You plant trees individually out by themselves. They're not surrounded by other trees. It's in what you call soil, which is essentially dirt. All right, so let's get off this. Well, I want to be native. If you want to be native, go live in the woods. You live in town. It's not a native environment. All right, so let's kind of take that off the table. So let's look at other trees. Mackie happens to be one of my favorites. Now, that's an opinion, of course, when you get to that. I like this tree. It flowers at the end of July, early August. When I become king of the United States, so we get rid of these stupid election sort of things, I'm going to make it a law that garden centers cannot be opened in the spring. They can only be opened in the summer and fall. You know what? The minute I do that, we'll get more diversity out there. Because everybody goes in the garden center and they go for the sh shining light. Anything in bloom, they'll buy. All right, let's take a look at some other trees. And this is one of them. I love it. But again, am I worried about something coming in? Nope. There's, nothing na there's no native equivalents here. Six species, all there. Hop tree I like, and hop tree's only native here. I do not lie awake at night thinking what's going to come in from Asia to attack our hop trees. There is always that possibility. We do have a few threats that occur at a higher level, but no. It's not a species-rich genus, six, and it's not found in, on all three continents. It's found on one. It's here. You know, it's a tree that isn't utilized that much. And it is a tree. There's one at the campus of North Dakota State University. To me, it makes a nice substitute for crab apples, a tree that's way overused and I hate and will be banned when I become king. All right. We don't want that tree anymore. I always got a kick out of it. It bloomed over Mother's Day when I worked in Michigan and everybody would buy a crab apple for mom. And I thought, what's that say about mom? Crabby? I don't know. And I love the flowers on this. I will admit they do range from a light fragrance to a slight odor, you know, so don't stick them in your nose and snort right away. You might get a bad one. But once again, there is room for cultivars. Well, the other thing I didn't mention is I also teach in the nursing department at SDSU because I actually do have a couple of spare minutes of my life. And that's a fun group to teach to, by the way. I do the uh, uh, pre-hospital trauma uh, the um, EMT class. And of course, we always talk about medications, and you can give this medication except when. 
So what are we talking about now? Situations which a procedure potentially inadvisable. So I've just said you need to diversify. We need to get more gender out there, but obviously I have to put down a few checks, some things you have to kind of think about before you just go wild with let's just plant, because diversity in itself is not any protection either, as I'm sure you're all aware. So let's take a look at that. First of all, obviously the species environmental requirements must meet the site conditions. It does no good to say we're gonna plant this tree out there if it's on a site in which it cannot grow. And unfortunately, we've pretty well burned through the ones where we don't need to worry about that. You know, when people were planting ash, I didn't care if they took a soil test. I didn't even care if they had soil. It was gonna grow. But you start going out and planting some of these other genera, you know what, you better know the site because they're not adapted at all. They're not trees that we can just go out and plant everywhere. So you know what, we may actually start having to pay attention to soils. We might actually have to start looking at sites. Oh my gosh, we might actually have to start using our brains. All right, I think that's great. I mean, that's value to us. Here's where they can grow, here's where they can't. Uh, but again, we've got to watch it. I mean, look at these sort of tree plantings. I mean, this is great. Uh, this was done down in St. Louis. Is that tree going to live? This was done by an engineer, of course. Uh, they, oops, hit the wrong button. They put two of them in there. How would you like to be those trees in traffic every day? They're going to die of stress. <laughs> and look at this one, Freeman Maple. You plant it on the right site. Look at that, 35 feet in 10 years. That's what we planted on campus on native soils. And then I planted a few over on the athletic grounds, same time five feet in 10 years. You know, you plant these off-site, they fade quick. Second one, while nothing's native to the urban forest, I do like that sense of place. You know, I think that's important. We don't want to look, have everything look the same, like McDonald's, as I call it. It's all the same everywhere. I love oaks because that's what we have out there. So I'm not telling you, even though I, I realize nothing's native, I'm not saying try to lose the local flavor. We do want to emphasize that. Third, be careful not to create problems by planting invasive species. You know, we've always got to go through that check. I love the philodendrons uh, found in a fairly small area, but some of you from out east know that those can become invasive. Nori maples become invasive. My favorite invasive, of course, is common buckthorn, which occurs everywhere. So it might be best to introduce male cultivars, something that at least we're not being invasive right away, and we do have to be careful as we're introducing things. I'll also mention, of course, even male, we have to be cautious. I'm sure you're all aware of the fact that we're now seeing trees outwitting us, and they're switching sex. Uh, you know, we always used to plant ginkgos and saying, hey, it's a male, it's not going to fruit. Guess what? You get a whole group of male ginkgos together, one of them's going to decide to be a girl. Uh, and so... <laughs> yeah, figure that one out. But nevertheless, be cautious on that mail only. And with that, to finish on time for our next speaker, thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. This concludes Dr. Ball's talk on using diversity to reduce the impact of exotic pests. To learn more about tree selection and diversity, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including Tree Selection and Planting, a collection of CEU articles. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this lecture, visit the ISA online store 
and select online CEU quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.